Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a very special guest. Now, for many of you, you may have heard of Dr. Lanny Cass. For those of us with an Air Force background, she is an institution within the Air Force. She began her career by spending the first couple of decades at National War College, and then she left the War College and went and was a special assistant to the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, and then went and was the Senior Policy Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then went to serve as an Executive Vice President at CACI after retiring from the Air Force. And Lanny, of course, you know, as you talk to Lanny, you can hear she is originally from Israel. And I, you were a fighter pilot, weren't you, Lanny? Well, Isn't we don't what... talk about it in public. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so with that, welcome to NucleCast, Lanny. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Now, one, you know, you and I have known each other for close to 20 years now. And I remember when you were at the air staff and you were one of the more outspoken voices at the air staff, and you always had unique perspectives that challenged the status quo. You could say that. (laughs) (laughs) And so I wanted to bring you on today because the big challenge we have right now is the United States and everybody recognizes we're no longer in a bipolar world where it's the U.S. versus the Soviets. It's now the U.S. versus Russia versus a China that's looking to be a peer. And then there's North Korea that is looking to build an arsenal that we cannot defend against. And then we have, you know, Iran that may or may not go nuclear. And we have proliferation threats. If, if you know, if South Korea were to, to match the North Koreans, then the Japanese would probably go nuclear. And if Iran that, goes nuclear, then... You, so... And, you know, in many respects, this world that we're looking at where the U.S. has to defend against multiple adversaries is somewhat similar to the to the world that Israel finds itself in, where it has multiple adversaries all around it that it has to defend itself against. And I thought you having both, you know, you're you've been an American for 40 years now. But you also have this other background, so you know both sides of it. Could give us some insights in how the United States can handle the the developing strategic environment in which we find ourselves. Sure, Adam. So, so before I start, let me draw the major difference. The United States is a global power with global commitments and global alliances. 
So whether it wants or not, it has treaty commitments in Europe and in Asia and in the Middle East. Israel is a regional power, a small country with 9 million people over a strip of land uh, surrounded by much larger Arab countries. It doesn't have global commitments. It doesn't need to project power anywhere beyond the region. So the problem set is different um, but similar. So arguably the United States has a choice as long as nobody is attacking the United States popular. We do have treaties, but you know, you could theoretically not that the United States would ever do that, renege on a treaty and say, you know what, Europe, you know what, Asia, fortress America, we're defending only ourselves. Now, that's not going to happen. We are deployed forward. We're going to respect our treaty commitments. The situation in Israel is quite different. It has to defend itself from a multi-vector, multi-dimensional, multi-directional threat. So if you look at the map, and I wish you had a map of the Middle East, Israel is a tiny stripe of land along the Mediterranean. And, you know, when I was in the military, it was literally a couple of minutes after you get in the air, your either feet wet, meaning you're over the ocean, or you're in Indian country. I mean, those were the only choices um, because at its narrowest, narrowest point, it is nine miles. So, I mean, imagine that, okay? And you can go from north to south from the northmost point to the southern, southernmost point in about eight hours driving leisurely. So, you know, most Americans cannot even imagine how tiny it is. It borders um, hostile nations. Um, it needs to defend those borders. Now, going from south to north, it borders Egypt, with which it has a cold peace um, since the Camp David Accords negotiated with the United States. Very long border, which I would kind of compare to our border with Mexico. And the reason I am saying that it's on the non-Israeli side, it's a desert which Egypt is supposed to patrol. It's a Sinai desert. They're doing a pretty crappy job trying to patrol that. 
at the Israeli military is pretty stretched thin. That is a traditional smuggling area. Uh, smuggling of everything. People, weapons, drugs, you name it, it gets smuggled through the Sinai Desert. Um, and, and the Sinai Desert obviously opens to the Red Sea on one side and to the Persian Gulf on the other side. So stuff from both Iran and Saudi Arabia and other areas flows very, very freely. Population in um, the Sinai Desert is small, and their primary occupation and income comes from smuggling. Um, one of the key problems is that if you move from the south, slightly west, you have the Gaza Strip, uh, a Palestinian territory, which was under Egyptian control until 1967, until the war in 1967. During the peace talks with Egypt, Israel wanted to return Gaza to Egypt. Egypt said, no, thank you, not interested in that hornet's nest. So that remained under Israeli control. Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005, and Gaza became a absolutely hugely dangerous basis of terrorist activity. I mean, if you were listening to the news, rockets fired from Gaza into Israel almost daily, into central Israel, killing civilians. And of course, Israel is retaliating. So Gaza, if you look at the map, could have been Singapore. It has prime oil estate on the Mediterranean, highly educated population. Unfortunately, what happened after the Israeli withdrawal, um, a terrorist organization named Hamas, sponsored by Iran, threw out the Palestinian Authority and took control of the Gaza Strip. Um, they weren't, I guess, militant enough. So now you have ISIS, you know, which migrated from Iraq and Syria. You have the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is an indigenous Al-Qaeda offshoot. And they are getting those weapons two ways, three ways, really. Uh, smuggled through the Sinai in major underground tunnels, very similar to what the United States and South Korea is facing with North Korea, where there are tunnels underground which pop up very deeply in the South Korean territory, same in Israel. 
um, being on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast, um, some of the supply comes by sea. Now, the Israeli Navy is pretty small, considered the United States Coast Guard. It's not a blue water navy by any stretch of the imagination. It is trying to patrol those waters, but kind of like the United States Coast Guard, you know, they catch 10, 10% of what comes in. And again, what comes in are drugs, weapons, and people. And that what goes out as well, predominantly people. So you have a lot of human trafficking. On a land, Gaza has only two crossings, one to Egypt overland and one to Israel. Um, those crossings are well guarded, but, you know, kind of, again, think the border in Texas or Arizona, you know, you have a limited number of people and unlimited number trying to get in. So that situation, you know, amazing as it is, um, every time I hear about what's happening in Texas or in Arizona, I am thinking about the Gaza Strip. Extremely similar. Now, moving um, from the south, and I'll go south and east. I mean, I'll go north from the south. I'll go north and east. You have Jordan, with which Israel has a peace treaty, and that is a very peaceful border. But again, there is smuggling going on along that border. Um, both sides are cooperating, uh, consider the United States and Mexico. Um, so there is, you know, cooperation still doesn't mean that stuff does not get through. Go let me ask you. Yes, go ahead. Let, let, so let me turn back for a minute to Gaza and see, are, are there any analogies or advice for, you know, there's this fraught relationship between Israel and those in the Gaza Strip. Yes. And in, is it, is there any analogies there or utility for, let's say, the North Korea, South Korea border and relationship? And is there... It's, is there any way, you know, that's not been a relationship that's been solved? No. It, or is there, it's not going to be solved. Is there any advice for thinking about, let's say, North Korea, South Korea? So it's, it's a very interesting analogy, Adam, but it is fundamentally different because, okay, in this particular case, the South Korea is not Israel. The South Korea is the West Bank. So it is the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. So I was getting there going north and east past Jordan, bordering Israel. 
to have a viable Palestinian state, the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Palestinians in Gaza somehow need to unite. Kind of like North Korea and South Korea, or kind of like China and Taiwan, uh, except there is no animosity between the two. But what happened in Gaza, um, they kicked out, literally in a very violent uprising, um, the Palestinian Authority from the West Bank and declared their independence under a designated terrorist organization. Think North Korea. But in this particular case, if you want a good analogy, Israel is in the middle. So Israel is the United States in this situation, and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is the South Korea that kind of wants unification, but is really concerned because it is much more moderate. It got kicked out from Gaza, and it is concerned it will get kicked out from the West Bank if there is unification. You know, um, the West Bank economically is much better off because the border with Israel or the line with Israel is much more open. Um, there is much more economic collaboration um, to the point of mutual dependencies. Um, but their interest, if you want to have a contiguous, viable Palestinian state, it has to be the West Bank and Gaza, you know, and there were numerous ideas how to do that, and all were rejected by the Palestinians, unfortunately. So you don't have peace either in Gaza or on the West Bank. And again, the West Bank is a very explosive territory. So your analogy is good, but I would transpose the players. Okay. Now, it's about that time where we have to take a quick break. So we'll be right back. And when we come back, uh, Lania, I want to see if you think that there are any useful lessons for the United States to learn you know, from this microcosm of this regional sure. issue with Israel uh, that, that perhaps the U.S. can learn as it enters a new world. And so when we, we come back, that's your question. So you're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence.
And we're back and we're talking with Lanny Cass. And Lanny, I gave you before the break the question, what are the lessons for the United States? And so uh, what say you, Lanny? So I think the main lesson is strategic focus and a clear sense of priorities. Because when you're trying to defend everywhere, you're defending nowhere. And when your attention is scattered on things that are of secondary importance long-term, you let things that could become a real serious threats in the longer term, you allow those to fester. In Israel's example, Syria is is a good, good example, and we did not talk about Syria. So from the short-sighted perspective, and Israel was focused on other things, there is no peace treaty with Syria, the third country that is a military power that fought wars with Israel, a ceasefire, a stable ceasefire on the Golan Heights. Um, Israel was paying zero attention to that border. Um, As a result of the United States war in Iraq, um, ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria was born. You have a civil war in Syria, a brutal civil war, in which both Russia and the United States are engaged, in which chemical weapons were used against the indigenous population by their own government where President Obama drew a red line and didn't do anything when thousands, literally thousands of civilians were killed by the president of Syria, uh, Assad, using chemical weapons. And right now you have a U.S. president, you have Russia presence, Um, Israel has its own interests in having freedom of action predominantly in the air against terrorist targets in Syria. It needs to deconflict that with Russia. All things that were not anticipated because the attention was elsewhere. So when you have multiple commitments, multiple issues on your own border and, you know, around for the United States, around the the globe, having a clear set of priorities is really important. You know, most Americans, if you ask them, um, if you spoil back, Adam, and you go to February of last year, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, most Americans could not find Ukraine on a map. 
name its, its capital, name its currency, name its parliament. I mean, it, it wasn't anything that anybody in the United States paid attention. We are now there in a proxy war that could lead to a thermonuclear exchange where the only country that can destroy the United States in 30 minutes. So you've got to ask yourself, how did that happen? You ask the average American what's more important, security of America's borders or Ukraine, my guess is nine out of 10 Americans would say security along the border. You know, not dissimilar to Israel, its attention is on its immediate borders. Iran, which poses an existential threat to Israel, does not share a border with Israel, neither does Iraq. Now, during Desert Storm, Iraq fired missiles into Israel, Um, you know, territorial proximity is no longer important. So trying to think globally in balancing alliance commitments, security commitments, threats and opportunities is the job of a strategist. That's why you pay people to do that And I would say, and I think Adam heard me say it in public, we suck at doing that. I mean, the focus is on today, this minute, the next news cycle. International problems have a tendency to fester. And, you know, contrary to wine, bad news doesn't become better over time. <laughs> yeah, it's a you, you make a good point. You you sort of went in a direction I wasn't I wasn't expecting, but but the point is valid in that when you take your eye off the ball of what's most important and you sort of start chasing rabbits and yeah. you you know you go after whatever this shiny object is and this is in many respects what the chinese for example have not done they have continued to focus on their objectives they've laid out clearly what they want to do yep uh they've been patient they've you know it's like uh, deng xiaoping said you know what was it a bide your time and hide your strength correct and and so they've they've done just that, and then they have periodically shown some strength to see how how the U.S. and others would respond. And then now we're finding ourselves in a position where we're in, like you said, a proxy war with the Russians, where we have China breaking out, and we have you know a what could be if if Iran were to build a bomb, and then the Saudis were to go nuclear, and everyone in the region were to go nuclear, we could have this you know, this uh, terrible strategic situation for the United States that's tried to sort of carefully manage the Middle East and, you know, the repercussions for Asia from an Iran, because they're, you know, it's not just westward that people fear Iran. 
you know, it's eastward as well. Absolutely. So it's, and widely yeah. so. Yeah. So it's, uh, you, you, you bring up a, uh, a valid point and, and it's interesting because I was talking to somebody the other day, we were talking about sort of where we stood on issues, you know, cause you generally think about social issues, economic issues, and then sort of military foreign policy issues. And I, I was saying, you know, I sort of wish there was a think tank that, uh, that applied the Weinberger doctrine. You know, because the Weinberger Doctrine, I think, is in many respects what you're talking about. Yes, definitely. And there, there certainly is no think tank that does doctrine, that. Doctrine, but it's the same thing. Yeah. And so, how would you submit that if you if you were to I, I I don't I don't think I've ever brought it out when we're around, but but I actually have a lamp that I picked up in the souk in Alexandria. And it and it gives three wishes to whomever I, whomever I give it to. So if I were to let you use my lamp, and let you make three wishes about American foreign policy, oh God, only in the three? years ahead, only three. Uh, what what wishes would you make as we think about this tripolar world that we're now interested in? That that's an excellent question, Adam, and in no particular order, and tell me when the genie appears and says, okay, you got it. Um, In no particular order, stop chasing after shiny objects. Don't make policy based on a news cycle. And I'll give you a quick example of getting away from your magic map. There, yesterday, were critical election in Turkey. Critical election in Turkey. A NATO ally, um, if you look at the map, very important strategic position straddling Europe and Asia, close to Russia, um, controlling the straits into the Med. I mean, truly, truly important. I've been listening to the news. I don't know what's the outcome of the election. And, I, you know, I'll Google it and I'll find a Turkish or British source telling me, but clearly doesn't make the American news. And, and that is important. So that, that would be wish number one. Don't chase against the shiny object. Try as a nation with global alliances and global commitments to look at things holistically. And, and by holistically, I mean consider second and third audio implications of actions and inactions. When you do nothing, it's a decision to. And that decision not to act will have consequences that you will have to live with. So long wish number one. Wish number two. Understand history 
and understand culture. The American attitude to international affairs, as you know, and we, you and I had this conversation, Adam, we are a nation of engineers. Oh, there is a problem, let's find a solution. You know, your conflict goes back to the time of Abraham. Okay, just get over it. That's not the way the universe operates. Um, great example in the Far East, right? The United States is trying to build an alliance against China. Very few Americans know that the Japanese do not have direct lines of communications with anybody in Asia because of what happened in World War II. So we forgave them, and they forgave us for dropping two nuclear weapons on them, but the Koreans will not speak directly to the Japanese except for the United States. So, and we don't get it. And we're like, why don't you talk to each other? You mentioned before, you know, Korea will develop nuclear weapons and Japan will follow. That would be a disaster for Asia where the Japanese occupation in the 30s and 40s is like it happened yesterday. People don't get over what we are able to get over. So try to understand the universe as it is, not as you wish it to be. And third and related, stop mirror imaging. The universe is not a replica of the United States. I think you have done an incredible job and have shown incredible imagination, you know, drawing an analogy between a little country in the Middle East and a global superpower, right? And yes, you can draw analogies, but that is different than applying our standards of rationality and behavior to other nations. They don't behave in our paradigm. And that is why we are con constantly, consistently surprised by events. And you go, how did that happen? Well, while you didn't pay attention, X, Y, and Z, which date back millennia, you know, kind of burst into the open. India, Pakistan, okay? Two nuclear powers. We're not even thinking about that. You know, if they start fighting over whatever godforsaken border, you know, that most Americans could not find on the map. This was actually war gained. You are talking about 
hundreds of millions of civilian casualties and the world never being the same because the taboo on nuclear weapons that existed since 1945 has been violated and violated in a region we pay zero attention to. And if the genie will be kind enough and grant me one more wish. Justice once. Justice, justice once. <laughs> I know. Just, just this once. Okay. We elect our leaders for two or four years. And we are driven by that period and by the news cycle. That is not how the world operates. You know, things happen long term. And American leaders very often behave as if they came into a movie, you know, with 15 minutes before the credits roll, and you're trying to figure out what happened from the beginning. Well, a lot happened. It's all written. But you got to go and study it. Yeah. Ovil, how's the journey to me? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, those are all, you know, those are often things with... So often we focus here on Nuclecast on, you know, the technical elements, the warhead elements, but taking a step back to the broader strategic application of American power and, and that effort, you know, it's, what is that saying that, uh, uh, I'll butcher the paraphrase, but, you know, you know, all the efforts in the planning, not in the execution. And so, yeah, no, that, that, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Yeah, so it's it's a good good thing to step back and think about these issues and think about you know how are we actually planning and building our strategies as we look to deal with Russia, China, North Korea, potentially Iran, and and this the the world that is dramatically changing. So yes, you you helped us to to take a different look at it today, and it, we we tried to draw some analogies from the Israeli experience and, and in many respects that you, you made a good point that, you know, there, you know, each, each circumstance, each country has its own unique, you know, history and culture that we all have to take into account. And so, you know, the one, the one hard thing about analogies is that they're always useful, but they're always wrong. They're not wrong. Adam, I would say they're super useful. They're always imperfect. You know, so as long as you can say, okay, I am using an analogy to help me think, but it is not a one-to-one comparison, you know, and I am aware that I'm comparing apples to Tuesdays. You know, not even in the orange category, I'm comparing apples to Tuesdays. You can draw pretty interesting conclusions. I mean, to your credit, I never 
thought about drawing this this comparison. So I was winging it as you were asking the questions. Um, you know, because, you know, at first blush, why would you compare a tiny country, you know, with zero international alliances and obligations, you know, to a country that has an entangling set of alliances and is facing a pretty existential threat now on its borders, which we didn't used to talk about. You know, I mean, I remember when I I taught at the National War College, and this was kind of, you know, the going-in statement about the United States. Unique geostrategic possession, right? Fish to the east, fish to the west, weak and compliant neighbors, north and south. Well, guess what? That's no longer the case. I mean, we are deployed at the border in Texas. Yeah. You know, and space and cyber domains mean anybody can touch us. Well, exactly. And we didn't even touch on the space and cyber domains, you know, and, and in general, multi, multi-domain operations. As you'll recall, you know, now everybody's talking about it, but you and I invented that term on the air staff, you know, in 2006. Yeah. You know, and now everybody is talking multi-domain, cross-domain, blah, blah, blah. As if, you know, this is a birthright. You know, we fought for that term and had to be pretty outspoken for the term to be accepted. Yeah. I remember we lost a chief because of that, among <laughs> other things. Right. You know, because it was perceived like the Air Force wants to be, you know, in charge of everything. That never was the objective. Yeah. So that's well, I, that's I do. I'm coming from. Well, I, I appreciate uh, you joining us today on Nuclecast. It's It's been an interesting discussion, and hopefully our listeners will enjoy uh, us taking them a bit uh, in a different direction instead of our, our pretty standard discussion about modernization and new delivery systems and things of that nature. Today, we took a wholly different direction. So thanks for uh, joining us to do that, Lanny. Thank you, Adam. And thanks for running a really wonderful uh, podcast. And you know that I speak technology. So if you want You know, in technology disconnected from the strategic context, you know, is just shiny, shiny things. You know, it's interesting, but the the question is, what are you going to do with it? And what are you going to do when it's not invented here and used for purposes that you never intended it? Um, Adam, I don't know if you're doing a podcast on uh, artificial intelligence. I would love to be on that. All right. Well, we'll set a, a future date for a discussion 
about AI and its use and who's building it and, you know, who's got the lead. So that's, that'll yeah, be absolutely. Future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was a great pleasure. And I'm sorry we had all this trouble um, at the beginning. Nah, no worries. Well, let me thank the listeners for joining us on Nuclecast and we'll, we'll see you on the next episode. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 